I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Michaela, did you know that the 280 Highway used to run all along the Barcadero and would exit right at Broadway Street so you can zip right over to North Beach and Chinatown? I've heard of this old super highway. Intriguing. <laughs> super highway. <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy is that I grew up here and I'm older than you guys and I do not remember the Embarcadero Freeway at all. I remember really? that. The ferry building was musty and gross, but other than that, I don't remember the freeway at all. (laughs) That is so totally not that experience now. (laughs) I do remember when the earthquake happened. Jay, do you remember the Loma Prieta earthquake? How old were you? Oh, I was about five or six, and I was sitting in my living room watching those early morning cartoons, and then the whole house started to shake, and I was like, oh, 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 and it ran right underneath a dining room table, just like how I was taught in school. And we just kind of hung on for the ride. Wow. That's crazy. I was also, I mean, we're the same age, Jay. I was also five, six years old. I actually felt it in central California down in Santa Maria near Santa Barbara, all the way down there. And I remember it because it was my first earthquake. It was also my British mom's very first earthquake. So we were all freaked out. I mean, it was big down there, it just shows how huge and scary it must have been up here. My God. And I didn't realize that that's why there's no more freeway. That's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. I was in graduate school when the earthquake happened. And I remember that my roommate, his mother called and said, Gary, 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 the bridge fell down, the bridge fell down. And I called my mother immediately and discovered that it wasn't the bridge. It was part of the Nimitz Freeway. And many more people would have been killed, except that there was a World Series, a Bay Series between the Giants and the A's. And most people were either at the game or they were at home watching the game, which saved many, many lives. Baseball (sighs) saved many lives. So, yes, it was very scary. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. And talking about the highway falling down, that was the beginning of what is now the new Embarcadero Walkway. We had to take it down at some point. And we have a special guest for you, Mr. Art Agnes, who was the former mayor of San Francisco, who fought really hard to not have it rebuilt. Art Agnos was San Francisco's 39th mayor from 1988 to 1992. He became mayor right after Dianne Feinstein. What you may not know is that he actually ran against Harvey Milk, but Art was the one who made the many modern changes to the city that we still celebrate today in just one term. His former career as a social worker had a very strong influence on how he chose to govern San Francisco. Art created commissions within the community which opened up pathways where regular citizens could have a real voice. 
He shifted the old ways of father-to-son nepotism within the fire department and police department. Today, we have our second African-American police chief and our second female fire chief. The most visible change you can see right now is the removal of the freeway that went over the Embarcadero, now next to the ferry building. We now have a spacious and welcoming waterfront. Mayor Art Agnos encouraged community to drive through Chinatown and support your locals on the way or to take public transportation. Now these are only a few of the monumental changes that took place under his administration. Susan, Jay, and I found out so much more when we had the honor and the pleasure of speaking to Art Agnos one sunny day at the Ferry Building in February of 2022. Good afternoon. This is Art Agnos speaking to you from the plaza at the Ferry Building. I came to San Francisco on a Greyhound bus from Massachusetts. The um, trip took three days and two nights nonstop in September of 1966. And I've never been west of the Mississippi River except for a brief tour in the Army where I was in Colorado. So I'd never been to the far west, so to speak. And I thought I was going to San Diego. To me, from the East Coast, <laughs> California was not as big as it clearly is. Right. We stopped in San Francisco. And I knew a girl here that I had met in college. She said, stop by if you're here. So I stopped. One thing led to another. We got involved. And so I decided to stay in San Francisco. But it was a shock because I was expecting sandy beaches and all the things you get in <laughs> San Diego. But right. here it was the end of summer and it was foggy and all that. I said, where the hell am I? You know, and then I quickly learned and fell in love with the city. I was a social worker when I came here. I just graduated from Florida State University, where I got my master's in social work. So I came here September 1st, uh, my birthday in 1966, and started looking for a job and found one at the San Francisco Housing Authority as the assistant to the director of human relations and social services, a wonderful, wonderful woman who became my mentor, uh, Effie Robinson. She was the first to be appointed to that position, and it was a difficult one because the housing authority had been accused and demonstrated that they were discriminating by segregating different ethnic groups by neighborhoods. So the Chinese were in Chinatown, and the blacks were in the Bayview Hunters Point, and that kind of thing. So our job was to work on changing that philosophy, that attitude at the Housing Authority, as well as giving individual services to people in public housing as their advocates. So my first assignment was out in Bayview in, uh, in Visitation and Visitation Valley working in those projects. And I did that for about two or three years and realized that I had no power. So I talked to my boss and I said, you know, here we are trying to get people to adjust to things they shouldn't be adjusting to. We should be changing them. And I said, how do we get the power to do that? And she says, well, if you want power, you've got to become a politician. So I said, well, how do we do that? I didn't know a thing about it. And, and she said, well, there's two ways. One, you have money and you can contribute to them and they pay attention to you. You don't have any money. So she said, uh, you can contribute your labor, volunteer. 
And so I said, okay, who's a good politician that I can volunteer for? Because I'd only been here a couple of years and was not interested in politics. I was not even captain of the safety patrol in school. You know what the safety patrol is? (laughs) You you get out five minutes early and you stand in the hallway. I, I didn't even do that. I was never captain of a team. I was nothing. But I had this growing urge to get power even though I couldn't identify what I wanted, in order to make things better for the people that I was working for. So she said, you know, you got to volunteer. And I said, well, who's a good politician? And she said, Leo McCarthy is running for the state assembly, and he's been a pretty good supervisor. You ought to go help him. So I went out to help him. He was running in the western side of the city, Sunset, Richmond, etc., Leo T. McCarthy served with my father in the Assembly from 1969 to 1974. He was Speaker of the California State Assembly from 1974 to 1980 and Lieutenant Governor for the State of California when George Duke Magian was Governor from 1983 to 1995. I went to, and I said, I'd like to volunteer. And he says, what can you do? I said, nothing. I've never done this before, but I'm a quick study. Tell me what you want. So he gives me a Democratic Party manual and said, have you ever registered voter? There was a part of the district in the OMI, the Ocean View, Merced, Ingleside area, which was a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And he says, these folks need to be registered. So I read the manual. It was pretty straightforward. I ran a registration drive. It was pretty good. And then he said, well, have you ever done get out the vote? No, he gave me the same manual. I read that and put that together and and it was very successful. So anyway, he won and he said, I'd like the way you handle people and your expertise in human rights and civil rights and and the elderly, which was one of my personal interests. And he said, I'd like to have you work for me. I said, I, frankly, I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to get into politics. <laughs> I said, I just want to have influence with you about the issues I care about. So I didn't take the job and went back to working at the housing authority. And then a couple of months later, he called me up and he says, what do you want to do with your life? I said, well, I'm doing it. I said, but I hope in a couple of years to get a PhD and teach at the university. So I said, look, you come to work for me now. And I will see that you get into UC Berkeley. And when you're ready, after a couple of years, you can leave me and go work on your doctorate. So I started working for him, and he was a wonderful teacher. He would give me, for example, a newspaper and said, tell me what you read in this story. It was a political story or an issue story. So I'd read it, give him my impression. He says, now, what about this? And, and he'd point out different things that I may have missed. Or he'd take me into a meeting with the governor or with someone. And he says, now, watch, the governor, Reagan at the time, the governor will be saying this. I'll be saying that. Watch for this kind of interplay. And it was an extraordinary kind of experience for me. And I learned a great deal in that process. So four years later, I was ready to write my dissertation. I had been working on my doctorate courses. And just about that time, I got shot. This was 1973. Oh, my goodness. In a series of shootings that were called the zebra murders. It was a radical sect of the black Muslims who required killing a white person in order to get in it. I was out in the Petrero projects because... Once I got into politics and had power, then my old constituents in the housing projects would call me around different issues to help them. 
So I was out at a meeting to get a health clinic started. Anyway, that messed up things because I was in and out of hospitals for a year. And by the time I was well again, there was an opportunity to run because John Burton had moved up and there was an opening. And I had a pretty good relationship with John, George Moscone, Willie Brown, because we were at peace. Prior to that, they had been fighting among themselves over political positions. But at this particular time, I was fortunate that it was peace in the political world of San Francisco. And so they all supported me. I ran against someone who's now famous, Harvey Milk. The irony of that is I was the liberal and he was the conservative. Not many people know that. If he were alive today, Harvey Milk would be 92 years old. Prior to being a supervisor for the city and county of San Francisco under Mayor George Moscone, Harvey Milk was involved in politics as a Republican and then later switched parties to Democrat. He was also a small business owner of a camera store on Castro Street. His campaign centered around running government like a business. And we need to get more small business type people instead of social workers like him. So I got all the endorsements from the traditional groups, even the gay groups. And I beat him rather comfortably and went to Sacramento. I wanted to do all that to get power so that I could use it to empower the people who had no power to control or influence the destiny of their own lives. That's what it's about for me. I would take my constituents with me to meet with influential people so that they could have that successful experience and then not need me the next time. Right. I did not want to be the broker. I wanted to empower people in order to help them make decisions about their lives or their community that would be influential and successful. I served 11 years in the state legislature, and I was very happy. I liked it. But just about that time in 1987, Mayor Feinstein was termed out of office. She was a good mayor and I think did a terrific job bringing the city through some very, very tumultuous times, if deadly times as well. What was happening during that time? Well, as you may recall, the worst thing that happened was the assassination of our mayor, George Moscone, and Harvey Milk. Before that, we had the horrific Jonestown massacre, where Jim Jim Jones killed hundreds of people in Guyana. Prior to that, we had the... Vietnam protests here and and stuff like that. We had the SLA kidnapping of Patricia Hearst. The 70s and 80s were were very difficult times. Now, there were some happy times. We won the Super Bowl with the 49ers. (laughs) You know, the mayor brought us through that. Mayor Feinstein brought us through that with her steady leadership. Now, did she do everything I like? No. But she was a good leader during a very, very challenging time for our city. And uh, I respect her for that. However, she had been a little too downtown oriented. And the neighborhoods were chafing at this kind of negligence, if you will. And I was a neighborhood guy. I tried to empower the neighborhoods and did in the eastern side of the city which I represented in the assembly for that period of time. People started coming to me as the election was in the offing and asking me if I would run for mayor. When I looked at the opposition, 
although they were honorable people, it was more of the same policy that was sort of downtown oriented. So I decided to run and ran a very neighborhood oriented campaign. My goal was to really pick up what sadly was unfinished business by Mayor Moscone because he was killed less than two years into his term. But he and I had the same philosophy. We had the same philosophy in the legislature, but more importantly here in the city, he was a neighborhood-oriented mayor and sought to empower people. For example, one of the things that he did that I copied was after he became mayor, he empowered what he called a neighborhood citizens committee for people coming from every part of the city to help him make selections of commissioners who would run the departments of the city under him as citizen commissioners. And so they interviewed and recommended people to the mayor and gave him a list from which he chose people from all over the city. Many of them had never been in government before as citizen volunteers or citizen commissioners. And I thought that was a great way to start. So when I came into office, I did the same thing. All of my commissioners, even you know the major ones, like the Public Utilities Commission, the Police Commission, the Fire Commission, and all those things had new people and a diverse group of people for the first time. We started to bring in more of the ethnic minorities that make up this city. That's what I wanted to do in my first year and did. However, when you're in the mayor's office, you can have an agenda And then something comes out of the blue and blows up your agenda and you've got to deal with that crisis that you never campaigned on, never expected. And in my case, I got sworn in and the next day I came to work and the city attorney, Louise Rennie, was waiting for me when I came into the office. And she says, Art, there's a federal court judge that wants to see you this morning. And I said, what for? She says, I don't know. She says, it's never happened before, but she wants to see you and me today in her office, and it's about the fire department. So we go over there, and it's federal judge uh, Marilyn Patel, and she says, Mr. Mayor, I know this is your first day on the job, but your city has been very slow to respond to my demand that integration in the fire department with blacks and women be expedited. And it's been going very slow. And the racism and sexism in there is out of control. Wow. My first day, first morning, and I get that. Out of control. And I'm seeing headlines, which I did see the next day. Fire department out of control. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So I didn't even know who the fire chief was because that was not an issue in the campaign. We talked about police, we talked about welfare, we talked about homeless and all that, but not the fire department. So I said, who's the chief? And I want to see him today. And uh, asked for his resignation, and he resigned. And we had a federal monitor who the judge had assigned to the city when she first issued an order, putting them under her control. And so I said, I'm going to pick a good chief, and we're going to fix this. Let me give you an idea of what was going on at the time. There were not many women. I think there was one or two. But what the men were doing, one of the things they did was, since the woman had a separate room to sleep in, they filled it 
literally the whole room with feminine hygiene products so that when she opened the door, all it comes out. Oh, oh God. As a protest. A Jewish guy had a swastika on his locker. All that stuff was going on. Obviously, I was just learning about it, but was very disturbed and uh, wanted to respond in a very fast and and appropriate way. So I put Jim Jefferson, an African-American businessman and uh, good guy, passed away, but uh, I put him in charge of the fire commission. Three years later, that same judge called me in. She said, good job, Mr. Mayor. Your department is in good hands. But the unions hated me. Because you see what happens with police and fire, but especially fire, is those guys, historically, and now women as well, were working class, blue collar guys. And so their inheritance was their jobs. And so this discrimination was based on them wanting to give their kid their job, because that was the inheritance. And that's why if you look at the history of the police and the fire department, you'll see names in each generation of the same people who are handing their job. Well, suddenly I was stopping all that. And it was taking away the inheritance for their kids. So it was personal for them. uh, Yeah, by bringing in Asians and women and blacks and Latinos, the whole thing, right? And I was told when I ran for re-election, 500 firefighters walk in precincts for my opponent because I had violated the tradition that I just described to you. So that was a big challenge, but we fixed it. I'm very proud of that. When you ask the kinds of things that I did, that was one of the major ones because today, look what we got. We got a gay woman as the chief of the fire department. That wasn't the case in 1988. So I'm very proud of that. And that was my first day in office. You can have an agenda, but in the mayor's office, these heat-seeking missiles are coming at you, and you don't even know they're in the air, never mind what they are. And you see what happens is, in politics at least, if it's a good heat-seeking missile, some supervisor or some assemblyman will reach up and intercept it because they want to deal with it. But if it's a bad one, that's creating a scandal or a crisis, they duck, <laughs> and it comes, and I can't duck. And you're the one. You're sitting there, and boom, it yeah. hits you. I would get these heat-seeking missiles. The fire department was an example. We started to deal with the homeless for the first time. In 1988, we did not understand what we now understand about the homeless. Mayor Feinstein had a live and let live policy, I was told, in that if they didn't get in the way during the day and hid in certain alleyways and doorways, life was okay. No harm, no foul. But when I came in, being a social worker and all that, I wanted a more professional approach to that. And we put together over a period of a year a comprehensive plan to deal with homelessness by engaging the advocates and the homeless themselves and, you know, all of the people that are part of the issue that Harvard recognized as one of the most innovative new plans to deal with an emerging problem. Because then we didn't recognize it as the kind of problem we obviously do today. Our approach at that time in 1988 was what I call the American disaster model. Whenever there's a disaster, tornado, flood, 
hurricane, you name it. What do we do? We declare it's a disaster. We open up an armory. Red Cross comes in, puts blankets out and coffee, donuts. And we tell people, here, go in the armory and we'll take care of you until the disaster subsides or you can get yourself together, right? So usually they stay a week or two and then they're going back to deal with the damage or whatever it might be. And so that's what we did with the homeless. We said, oh my God, these people are on the street. They're homeless, so it's a disaster. So we created these shelters and said, you can go in here. But after two weeks, they were in the same position as they were before because their problem was much deeper and comprehensive than a couple of weeks in a shelter would fix. We needed to address what caused the homelessness. So we put this all in a plan together and introduced it and started to implement it. After the earthquake, which I'll tell you a little bit about, the homeless were made homeless again by the earthquake. In 1989, San Francisco had the biggest earthquake since the big fire in 1906. The Loma Prieta earthquake was 6.9 in magnitude and lasted 20 seconds. It caused a lot of damage, including parts of the Nimitz freeway collapsing. We started to move them into SRO hotels and various kinds of places that we started to open up for them, along with what we call supportive services. Those were damaged in the earthquake, just like the facilities in the residential parts of the city. Everybody focused on the marina because that's where all of the uh, fires were and all of that kind of stuff. But in the south of market, there were hundreds and hundreds of homeless people who had been in low-rent hotels or who now were back on the street because their hotel was damaged as well. We had to find temporary places and there weren't enough. So they started to assemble in Civic Center in that big park there because they had no other place to go. And there were about four or five hundred people there in that center. And in those days, it had those trees and stuff. So they started to put up their, just what you see today, but it was all in Civic Center. And it became a media spectacle because these folks were so inventive that they tapped into the electricity that operated the accent lights for the trees in the park and started watching TV and all that. So every night, the TV stations would show these homeless folks doing all kinds of things, watching TV and drinking and a variety of other things. I started to get a lot of pressure to roust them. And my question was, where do I roust them? Yeah. Whose neighborhood would like to have this? It's my neighborhood here in Civic Center, but whose neighborhood should we move them to? And of course, I didn't want them to move them. I wanted them right there so that we could address their needs. It took me close to 10, 11 months to find other places for them so I could move them from Civic Center. It did a lot of political damage for me because of the regular media attention. So that was used against me by my opponent when I ran for re-election. And it was one of the two major issues that did me in politically. The other one was the Embarcadero, because as beautiful as it is today, back then it was just 
sort of a figment of my imagination. Nobody could see it. And unfortunately, a lot of people need to see it to say, oh, that's good. But we didn't have that yet. The Embarcadero starts in the 60s, I think, when some traffic planners wanted to connect the Bay Bridge with the Golden Gate Bridge with an elevated freeway that would avoid coming into the city, but just bypass the whole city up in the air. So they started to build this thing, and when they built it in front of the ferry building, People said, my God, we don't want that thing going all the way to the Bay Bridge. So there was a huge protest. This was before I came to the city. And there had been an election by Mayor Feinstein, who also wanted to take it down, in 1985. And people voted to keep it up. At that time, the ferry building, which is now one of the crown jewels of San Francisco, was a decrepit, shuttered building that we didn't know what to do with. And the only thing they did down here then was film Dirty Harry movies um, (laughs) with dead bodies and stuff. That's what was at the Embarcadero because of the elevated freeway. It was uh, just dirty and not a popular place in San Francisco. But it was convenient for transportation to get into Chinatown, North Beach, Fisherman's Wharf, Financial District, important parts of the city. Right. And it didn't go all the way to Golden Gate. No. No. It because stopped before. the marina was not going to have an elevated freeway going down Marina Boulevard to get to that bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and so in 1985, Mayor Feinstein, who didn't like the Embarcadero Freeway, asked the people of San Francisco, do you want to tear it down? And the vote was keep it up. So three years later, I come into the picture as a new mayor and the Embarcadero is damaged severely by the earthquake in October of 1988. Now the question is, how quickly can we repair it? And I didn't want to repair it. I wanted to take another shot at demolishing it. But the federal government was saying, we're not going to give you money to demolish it. We'll give you money to fix it. So I had a major political initiative to lobby the Department of Transportation at the federal level to allow us to use the money, it was about $50 million at that time, they allocated for repair for demolition. And thanks to Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, who was extremely effective in lobbying and directing me who to lobby, we were successful in convincing the then Secretary of Transportation under President Bush, Sam Skinner, good guy, even though he was a Republican, and he gave me the money, allowed me to transfer the money. So that was a key element to my plan to demolish it and replace it with a boulevard at the ground level. However, San Franciscans had grown so accustomed to the convenience of that. Basically, it was now a freeway off-ramp because we never connected it to the bridge. But it was a very important freeway off-ramp for Chinatown, North Beach, and all the parts of the northeast part of the city. They didn't want to take it down. And I had one guy who got something like 22,000 signatures urging me to keep it up and repair it. And they started to put an initiative on the ballot, so I knew I had to move quickly to demolish it so that it would become a moot issue. And I pushed hard. 
to get it done administratively before I had an election on my hands that I knew three years before had been successful in keeping it up. So we moved very quickly and uh, we're successful in putting all the money together, getting a vote out of the Board of Supervisors, a six to five vote, but I had one vote in reserve. Doris Ward was gonna come through if they didn't, bless her heart. She was running for election and Chinatown was part of her district. I said, Doris, I may need your vote. She says, you got it, but let's see if you need it. <laughs> and so we won by one vote and then it was just making it happen. And I had extraordinary support and a fellow named Doug Wright, the planning director at that time, Dean Macris, Rudy Nothenberg. They were all very supportive and we got it done in terms of demolishing the freeway. And then once it was down, I knew that our plan for what you see today was going to happen because there was no choice. That's how the Embarcadero came together. But when I ran for re-election, my opponent successfully used that issue against me over here. So, for example, in Chinatown, in I think it was seven previous elections, I always got anywhere from 70 to 75 percent of the vote, which in politics is a big landslide. When I ran for a re-election in mayor, I got, I think it was 40 percent or 35 because they were mad at me for demolishing the freeway and they thought that would hurt business. Who was mad at you? The Chinatown constituency, North Beach, the financial district. Everybody who used the off-ramps to get the work easily now had to go through city streets. And that's all it takes to lose a vote. (laughs) 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 So between that issue and my resistance to rousting homeless people from Civic Center until I had a place to put them were enough to defeat me by... uh, 1%. But having said that, today, when I walk down the street and I look at this building, this has become the number one destination in San Francisco. When I came into office, this was a slum. They only did Dirty Harry movies down here when they wanted a dead body to be found somewhere under a a freeway. So I'm very proud of this. And what I tell young politicians... I'm 84 now, so I do a lot of, not a lot, I do some mentoring of young politicians. And I try to tell them that they need to remember that their term will end, whether it's one term, two terms, or 10 terms, it's going to come to an end. And when that happens, you will be looking back and say, what did I do with this enormous power? that I had as mayor, did I make a difference in people's lives? Did I empower them so that they could improve their own lives with their own resources? And if the answer is yes, it sticks to you like a good breakfast in the morning. Yeah, (laughs) great analogy. And, and, And I got that feeling as I was walking over here to meet you all today. And I looked and I said, my God, night going, Art, you may have lost an election, but look what you left behind, Exactly. you see? And that's what it's about for me. And that's what I tell young wannabes or young folks who are in office. It's going to end. And when it ends and you look back, because you don't have all the folks around you telling you how great you are, you're going to say, did I really use this power well for the people?
something that I wanted to touch on too was with your homeless situation. I read that you were encouraging people to stay there in front of City Hall so that it became a very big issue for people on a daily, right? And yeah. I and I find that really beautiful and amazing <laughs> in the way that you worked the city to fix it. City didn't like it, but I knew it was the only right thing to do for people who are helpless. They may be sick and troubled, but they are helpless as well. And it is wrong for us to abuse them when they have no alternatives, no other resources, but us. So I wasn't about to let that happen until I could do it the right way, which I described to you, and we did it. And today, when my grandkids read what I did, they say, nice going, Grandpa. (laughs) High five, Grandpa. Nice going, Grandpa. I'd vote for you. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what it's about for me. Anyway. Absolutely. And I had another question. You mentioned that the head of the fire chief now is a lesbian and you worked alongside Harvey Milk. You beat Harvey Milk in an election, but you continued kind of what his legacy was, was gay rights and all of that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, good good question. I'm glad you reminded me. I didn't know it, but I just got a photo from some folks that I was the first to ride in the Gay Freedom Day parade. And I brought my family. My kids at that time were five and nine. And prior to my uh, being elected, no mayor had ever ridden in it, either by themselves or with their family. So I, I did both because I was a strong supporter. One member of my family is gay. I understood it and realized that I needed to make a statement there. And the statement was... Not just me, but my five-year-old son is in the car with my eight-year-old son and my wife because that's how I see gay people. They can be a family. They can be just like us. They are just like us. So I wanted to make that statement with us in the car. I'll send you a photo uh, of that. It just knocked their socks off, everybody, at that time. The gay parade is the most intimate, I think, of all the parades. Most of the parades, people are off on the curb, distant. But in the Gay Freedom Day parade, they get out into the middle of the street and you're almost going down a little corridor. So it's kind of intimate. When we finished the parade, it was so adoring and they were so wonderful that my five-year-old, who's now 40, uh, (laughs) said at the time, he says, hey, dad, that was great. Can we go back and do it over again? That's how warm and and positive it was. So we empowered people who had never been as empowered before in the numbers. Mayors before me also empowered minorities. I don't want to suggest that at all. But I did it bigger. And of course, we were in the middle of the AIDS crisis then. And that became a major issue for me in our health department. And fortunately, once again, we had Nancy Pelosi, who was leading the charge with the Ryan White bill in in Congress. And so we upped all of that. But Mayor Feinstein had done a spectacular job with the AIDS thing. So it was easy to pick up from where she left off and and, uh, give her a lot of credit for that. But Harvey Milk became a friend after because he knew he he probably knew that he wasn't going to beat me because I had the power structure of San Francisco supporting me. I had been engaged with the community for 15 years. 
But he wanted to get his name out there, and one of the ways you do that without a lot of money is you keep running until finally enough people know you and you win if you've got any talent, and he had talent. But he was the conservative. And I'll tell you one sidebar story of that. I don't think anybody's ever written. You all, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie, Harvey, the Milton yes, movie. Yeah, I have, yes. absolutely. Yes. I love it. I'm in it for <gasps> about a minute. You are? Yeah, but not me. Oh. A guy, <laughs> a, a guy plays me. Plays you. Yeah. Okay. Really annoyed me, too. Oh, Because no. he was this kind of milk toast nebbish guy. Everybody who saw the movie said, all right, that guy is not you. But he is famous because he's a famous um, modern artist. His name is Jeff Koons, K-O-O-N-S. His pieces sell for two, three million dollars each. He's in New York. Wait, so Jeff Koons played you in the movie? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Wow. You know, you know who he is? I, I know exactly who he is. <laughs> he's very famous. Yeah, yeah he is. Yeah. He's not Art Agnos. And if you see the movie, you'll see what I mean. Yeah. But I think he may have invested in the movie, which is why he played me. I had several actors who were trying out for the part call me and ask me questions so that they could figure out how to play me, but he never did. So the scene in the movie is very brief, but as I said, Harvey was more the conservative and I was the liberal in those days. Now it's progressive, but I was the liberal. So he would get up and say, you know, we can't have social workers making all these decisions. We've got to have business people, small business people like me at a camera shop and all that stuff. So the campaign was going well for me. And we had a debate where he did the same thing at the University of California Law School at a debate for us. He, he gets up and he did his rap. And afterwards, we're walking out. We had become friendly. He could do my rap. I could do his rap. So I said, you know, Harvey, you got potential in this business, but you got to change your rap. I said, this downer that you give about throw the bums out and you got to run government like a business, that's not going to work in this city. You've got to be hopeful. You've got to give people hope with programs that empower them. The next day, we're in another debate, and he says, I'm running for the assembly because I want to give people hope. Oh, my goodness. I want them to have power. <laughs> I said, hey, Harvey, that was for your next election, not this one. <laughs> he laughed. I won. And in the movie, if you look at it, it says, you got to give them hope. Oh. And that came from a straight guy yeah. in a debate, which the, my gay friends who know it always get a big kick out of Harvey's massive change in how he presented himself to give hope. He would say, I want to give hope to that kid in Altoona who's in the closet now. I want him to come out so that he can be empowered. That was my rep. Yeah, that was exactly. you. <laughs> so I get a fun out of teasing my gay friends. You know, it took a straight guy to tell you guys how to do it. Um, oh, that's my sweet. RV Milk thing. But we became buddies. In fact, it was he. I remember we were sitting next to each other. He got elected to the Board of Supervisors, and we were at the old synagogue that became the People's Temple with, with Jim Jones. And I remember that's the only time I ever was at an event that was sponsored by the People's Temple. He was in Guyana and was doing a speech to the congregation. And it was some event that they invited the politicians to. So I went. In those days, I was in the assembly. And I'm sitting next to Harvey. And I said, Harvey, you know this guy? He sounds a little goofy to me, what he's saying. He says, yeah, he is goofy. Stay away from him. And that was it. They gave me that warning, and I followed it. And, of course, a year later, we had that 
horrific scene where he killed everybody. A lot of politicians, your father and George and John, all, and I was ready to do the same thing because he was very progressive here in the city. He organized good rallies for the right reasons and all that stuff. So who knew that he was demented in a such a sinister way, you know? But Harvey warned me. Harvey had an instinct or something, and he says, stay away from him. Fortunately, he did. Wow. We would like to know what your hope is for either a oh, lot of things yeah, that's, I'm so going you, on you right told now. Me, yeah, yeah. You, for the future yeah. of San Francisco. We always like to talk about what do you see happening in San Francisco in the future? Because right now we're going through another really hard time. Yeah. And Mayor Breed has a lot on her plate Big. to deal Big. with. Yeah. 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 And I think she's doing a very good job in dealing with the pandemic. She's got a marvelous skill, better than me or any of the old timers like us, in explaining what people need to know in a very conversational but informative way. No highfalutin words and all. She just tells it straight and understandable and humanly. It's a real skill. I think she just has always had it. I don't think, and it's coming to the fore as mayor. Her, yep, I as agree. Mayor. With, I agree with you. She she is struggling with the homeless thing because it's gotten so much more complicated than my day. Yes, I had this problem right in front of City Hall. She's got it all over the place. It just has grown, and she's struggling with that. But I think she's doing the right things. But I don't think that any city can fix the homeless problem by themselves. We need, at the very minimum, a regional approach and, frankly, a state approach because the state has to help. How do they help? I don't think that you can fix all the people or help all the people who are mentally ill or addicts because, quite frankly, if you're an addict and a homeless person, we put you up in a Tenderloin hotel. As soon as you come down, you got 30 guys ready to sell you whatever you want. How do you resist that if you're an addict? If I were in office today, I'd be lobbying the governor to reopen and repurpose, and that's a key word, repurpose some of the abandoned mental health hospitals and make them more relevant to today's understanding of services, like a campus atmosphere, where we would house homeless people who are addicts to be healed in a more suburban, rural, whatever setting, but not the Tenderloin. Right, yeah, Because exactly. it's, it's just, we have to put them in a more appropriate setting than the South of Market, where they're walking around and confused and all the rest of it. And then bring them back when they are healthy. Because the city can't do it by itself. It doesn't have the places to put them. It doesn't have the surfaces to deal with it all. And so we have to put them, I think, in a more appropriate setting that I just described to you. We'll see what happens. But I think that the homeless issue is going to be with us for a while until we do create more expanded services in and outside the city to help people. The one issue that, in my mind, frankly, supersedes all the others, as important as they are, as important as dealing with 
the homeless issue and all that is, how do we preserve the middle class in this city? And by middle class, I mean, I'm not talking about just first responders. Everybody talks about the police, the fire. I'm worried about the musicians. I'm worried about the restaurant workers. I'm worried about the everyday people who make up the magic of San Francisco. It ain't the firefighters and the police that have made San Francisco the greatest city in the world. It is the working class people who come here because they're looking for an opportunity to be who they want to be with whomever they want to be it with. As long as it doesn't interfere with someone else's right to do the same thing, they're looking for a place where they can do that. And there aren't many places in this country or the world where you can. But San Francisco has always said, you come here, whether you come from Massachusetts like I did or any other part of the world. And you can be who you want to be as long as it doesn't interfere with someone else to do the same thing. We bring people who are looking to pursue their artist's interests or their musical interests or professional interests, whatever that is. And that's what this city has always been. This city started by people looking for a better life. That's why people came out here to look for gold, which started the city in 1850. Ever since, it's been like that. The blacks came here in World War II when we recruited them to work. The Asians have been coming here for years, even before that, to be the workers in the railroads and all that stuff. But today, all of that is threatened because of the high cost of living here. Unless we start creating programs and facilities, and I mean not just touch the surface, I mean dramatic, drastic actions to preserve middle-class people in this city with education, with housing, and all the other things that are part of the city, we're going to lose it. And what that means is we become a city of the rich, of the poor, but none of the creativity and the energy that you find in the Mission on Valencia or you find in other parts of the city as people are pursuing their dreams in a city that says, go ahead, we support you, go do it. You're encouraged. Today, that's going on in Oakland. Today, this mayor, the 39th mayor of San Francisco, if he were coming here today on a Greyhound bus instead of 1966, he'd stay on the bus and go to Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> he'd stay on the bus. I couldn't afford Although Oakland's not much different. Well, that's, I was just going to go there. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Oakland is, because of this invasion, if you will, of people from San Francisco looking for an affordable rent. Now they're moving even further to Stockton and to Antioch and Sacramento and that kind of thing. And I'd be right there going wherever, wherever I could to find a place to live because San Francisco is not. So I am desperately anxious about how we do that. Now, for example, if I were in office today and I'm not running for anything, so I don't want anybody to get any wrong ideas. I think the San Francisco Giants are the epitome of the responsible San Francisco-centric corporation. They are building a new community in their parking lot, right south of the ballpark. That's going to have about, I don't know where they wind up with, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 units of housing, along with a small business area, small business neighborhood type thing and all that. 40% of those will be for affordable housing. 
for middle-class people and low-income people. And thanks to John Burton, for example, they're going to include 25 units for emancipated um, foster, foster youth. Yeah, foster, foster youth yeah. who foster. have aged out. Exactly. Yeah. And the system, yes, exactly. That's right. And, and so suddenly they're 21 or 18, and they don't have a place to go because they've been supported by the foster care system. They're going to have two dozen units for them in this fancy, upscale neighborhood yeah. of which 40% are for middle-class and low-income people. That's what we need to do throughout the, the city, city, all over, so that we can preserve a place for middle-class people, which are, in my opinion, the essence of San Francisco's magic. For example, the superstar at the opera can afford to live in the city, but what about the number two, number three violinist? To me, that is the major challenge facing this city today and going forward. And if we don't address it, this city is not going to be the city we all love today. Frankly, if I were mayor to be draconian about this thing, I would stop all construction that doesn't include 40 to 50% for middle-class housing. Right. Period. And people would say, oh, you're anti-development, you're anti-growth, you're anti-business. Yeah, I am. If it doesn't include middle-class people. Exactly that we need to make this city work. And we just saw an example of the frustration that people have in this city with the recall of the school board. Those are good young people. They didn't have quite the political maturity they needed to, to deal with this, and they made some mistakes because they did not recognize what middle-class people are desperate for, which is a good education, not changing the name of George Washington's high school, but how do I get them into school and get them the kind of education they need to be successful going forward in our city? I love that interview. I loved learning so much about San Francisco's history and being reminded about all the things that have already come to pass that we forget about. It was great. The best thing that I got from Art was that he's a man who's committed to making a difference, not to extending his political career. And he brought the community together, which was phenomenal. He was a breath of fresh air for me in politics anyway. <laughs> I thought that he was such a real guy and just a lovely man. He actually, when we first greeted him, he went over, he's like, I'm going to go look at my statue. So he made the Gandhi statue that's in the ferry building out on the, the pier there. I thought that was so sweet. He changed so many things. I can't even believe all the things that he changed. So it was a real treat. We're so lucky that Art Agnos was there to open so many doors. And he did so knowing that he might lose his job and he did lose his job, but he did it anyway because it was the right thing to do. And that's amazing because now we take so many things for granted that he paved the way for us, a path for us to follow. Yeah, he really did. I can't wait to speak with more amazing humans that we get to talk to. Jay, who do we get to talk to next week? Next week, we have Pete Sicknick, who's the managing partner of The Water Bar, which is located right along the Margadero. You can listen to that new episode and all of our new episodes every single Wednesday, which is when they come out. You can get Beyond the Fog Radio wherever you get your podcast. Please be sure to subscribe. 
so that we can keep bringing you all of these untold stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. To see photos of our interview with Art Agnos, check out our Instagram and our Facebook page. We're at Beyond the Fog Radio. And you can also check out our website, follow us, share with your friends. We would really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Beyond the Fog Radio. Until next week, please take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Beyond the Fog Radio is brought to you by us, Tim Johnson, Tim O'Shea, Arliss Hayes, and Connor Chang. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.